0: All right, I direct your attention to the last verses of chapter 4, verses 10 to 18. And let's get the text into our mind as we proceed to examine its structure. Beginning to read at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' son Mark about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Now, the first question we want to address is the issue of the structure of this section. As you scan verses 10 to 18, I think you will notice a word that is repeated there. And repeated at interesting intervals. Does anyone see it? Yes, Art? Yes. The word is greet or greetings. It is the same Greek root in each instance. And in the Greek text, unlike in your English translation, it stands as the first word in each place where it occurs. It occurs in verse 10. It occurs in verse 12. It occurs in verse 14. occurs in verse 15. And finally, it occurs in verse 18. It is a, a structuring element because it also stands uh, next to a a personal identification. So uh, you'll notice that there's only one verse where it doesn't appear with a personal identification, and that's in verse 11. Uh, Verse 17 also doesn't have the word, though there is a personal name there. So it is, uh, drawing attention to the individuals that are there who are greeting the cautions from Rome and the Apostles' circle. There's another thing to note about this unit, and that is the so-called Epistolaria Inclusio. The very last words of the epistle are, Grace be with you. If you turn back to chapter 1, you'll notice... <coughs> That the second verse of the epistle echoes that same conclusion. Grace to you, grace be with you and peace. The Greek word charis is the same in both instances. And so Paul is wrapping up his epistolary statements. He's folding the Colossian Christians into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a wonderful thing to consider. As you note, the literary inclusion—he's including them all in the <clears throat> in the prayer that the grace of the Lord would be with them. Now, these individuals who are named here are individuals that are part of the Paul's, Paulian circle, as I indicated, and we have an opportunity to get to know them a little better. We don't. Uh, Spend a great deal of time on these minor characters, but they do uh, reappear in other places of the New Testament, and so it's worthwhile considering a introduction to them and a review of what we know from the rest of the Scriptures. So we begin with Aristarchus in verse 10. And although it may be a little bit awkward, if you can keep a finger or a marker there so we can get back to Colossians 4 quickly, let's go to the first mention of Aristarchus in the New Testament, which is in Acts chapter 19, verse 29. In this passage, which is the first of five mentions of Aristarchus, in this passage, we want to note where he comes from. And as you examine the verse, it tells us that Aristarchus was Paul's traveling companion, one of two in that verse, from Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is a part of Europe. It's directly across the Hellespont from Asia Minor in the ancient world. So Paul has uh, received a person from Macedonia in his traveling entourage. You don't have to turn too far, but you look at verse 4 of chapter 20, the next chapter there, And it tells us where in Macedonia Aristarchus came from. Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians. Aristarchus is then a Macedonian. He is also a Thessalonikan. You'll notice that in, if you keep your finger there, In chapter 20, and and you can use another finger and turn forward to chapter 27, verse 2. Both of the things we just observed, namely that Aristarchus is a Macedonian from Thessalonica, is explicitly stated in that Acts 27, 2 passage. We put out the sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. Well, this raises the question, how is it that he joins Paul's traveling entourage? What is it that commends the apostle to him or him to the apostle and to the gospel that the apostle is preaching? Well, the clue is in the city of his birth, and that's Thessalonica. Paul had preached in Thessalonica in Acts 17, two chapters before we're introduced to Aristarchus. And we have two letters to the Thessalonians that give us a little broader context for the church in that city. But it is probable that Aristarchus was a convert from Paul's preaching in Thessalonica during his second missionary journey. Now, why would he be interested in what Paul had to say? Well, if you go back to Colossians 4, you'll notice that Paul says something about his ethnic background. He says that in verse 11 about Aristarchus, as well as Barnabas and Mark and and Jesus. Notice what he says, they're from the circumcision. So that means that these individuals who remained with him, or whom he names in concert with those who remained with him, these individuals were born Jews. And that means that in Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue, Paul went into the synagogue in Acts 17, In that synagogue, there were Jews of the so-called Jewish diaspora, the spreading of Judaism through the Greco-Roman world as well as through the ancient world as a result of the Babylonian exile and their drifting to other parts of the world and settling in Jewish communities. There was one such in Thessalonica and in Paul's journeys. He generally went to the synagogue first in order to explain the fulfillment of the scriptures in the appearance and incarnation of the Son of God. So I think we can say with some probability that Aristarchus was a convert out of Judaism, rescued from the Jewish diaspora by the gospel that the apostle Paul preached. Now when we uh, meet him there in Acts 19.29 by name for the first time. He is a companion of Paul on Paul's third missionary journey, which places in Acts 19, places Paul in Ephesus, where he would spend two years, as you look at chapter 19, verse 10, he would spend two years there uh, laboring amongst the Ephesians. Now, when Paul is forced out of Ephesus, he goes on to Macedonia and then down to Greece, retracing the steps of his second missionary journey, Aristarchus in tow, coming along with him. So, we move here in chapter 19 and 20 through parts of the third missionary journey, and we shouldn't minimize the fact that Aristarchus has been part of this since Paul preached in his second missionary journey, he's been part of this gospel narrative. Now, when Paul goes back to Greece, he then comes back to Macedonia and goes down the west coast of Asia Minor to Miletus in Acts 20, verse 17. And it is in Miletus that Paul calls the Ephesian elders with whom he has been ministering for two years before in chapter 19. He calls the Ephesian elders and gives that famous farewell address in verses 18 to 35. Paul then sails on to Syria and eventually journeys to Jerusalem in chapter 20, verse 17 where he is arrested and sent to Rome so that from chapter 20 on, we're dealing with Paul's trials prior to his arrest and transport to Rome at the end of the book of Acts. Now, as a sidelight to note here, in Colossians 3.11, Paul has said there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. So here is a case in which circumcision plays no part in entrance into the gospel because, as Colossians 2.11 says, that Christ's own circumcision by crucifixion, and that's the intent of that verse, as we pointed out as we studied it in detail, Christ's circumcision by crucifixion puts an end to the ritual distinction or covenant rite of the circumcision of the flesh a better age brings a better sign of the new covenant in Christ baptism in water in the name of the father son and holy spirit and aristarchus became part of that uh, of, of that reality no i admit that his baptism is not recorded but nonetheless it was part of being admitted into the christian community and paul would not have Omitted it in his case. Now the third time that Aristarchus is mentioned, we've already looked at the passage, Acts 27 verse 2, where Paul is set to sail for Italy. That is, he's already been arrested, he's been tried, he's appealed to Caesar, they're putting him on a boat for Italy, and they leave from Adramitian, and sail along the coast of Asia, Asia Minor. And he is accompanied on the boat by Aristarchus, as we noted, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Now, it is clear from Colossians 4 that when Aristarchus lands at on the other end of that boat trip, he lands along with Paul, in Rome and becomes along with Paul, as Paul says in verse 10 of Colossians 4, a fellow prisoner. Now this raises the issue as to whether he is literally imprisoned along with the apostle or whether he is just bound as a result of the apostle being bound and uh, he's a fellow prisoner in the sense that he can come and go in the midst of that uh, community that's gathered around the apostle in Rome. It's hard to settle that issue because Paul sometimes uses that word co-prisoner or fellow prisoner to mean someone who is around him and in his, in his uh, area, in his arena of activity, even though they're not chained as he is chained, or at least he calls himself, he mentions that he's chained, Uh, to a guard there. Though it wasn't a cell, as we pointed out, it was a house arrest, but there were people permitted to come and go. Now, the last time Aristarchus is mentioned is in Philemon, verse 24, where he is called a fellow laborer with Paul in prison in Rome. Why mention his name uh, to the Colossians Christians? Well, it's clear that the name would be familiar to them. Perhaps from Epaphras, who is named in verse 12, and Epaphras, who is named in verse 7 of chapter 1, whom we have already indicated was responsible for bringing the gospel of grace to the Ephesians. So, uh, did Epaphras share this name, or did Aristarchus even travel with Epaphras down to Caussi, or at least was the name familiar because he was a companion of Paul when Paul was in Ephesus, and Epaphras had encountered Paul there his own conversion at the Apostle's hand while he was preaching in that city. Each of these individuals, Aristarchus included, each of these named individuals, is one who is a together with in Christ, together with Paul in Christ, uh, joined in the union of the grace of the Lord Jesus. So, Crucified together with Christ. Christ is crucified. Aristarchus is crucified together with Christ. He is born again together with Christ. As Christ is transformed from death to life, and in that sense, born again. So Aristarchus is born again in being joined to the Christ who is is transformed from death to life himself. He is raised up from the dead together with Christ, for in his union with Christ, as Christ was raised, so he was raised together with him. He is justified together or vindicated with Christ after the resurrection, as he is one who is declared in that declaration of status not guilty and righteous in God's sight. Let's not lose sight of the fact that each of these individuals who is named has a participation in the narrative biography of Christ himself, a biography of historical accomplishment of life, death, regeneration, and justification by resurrection. Glorification added to that, that is, even in Christ, Aristarchus is seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We want to fold down then the narrative of these individuals into the narrative which was replayed in Paul's experience, namely his encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. He died and was crucified to death on that road. His old life was was put to death. He was born again on that Damascus Road. He was translated from death to life. He was raised up together with Christ. He's looking into the face of the risen Christ as he is on his face in that Damascus Road, and he is participating in that experience and the glory of the glorified Christ as his own story, his own narrative, his own history is altered by the history that alters Christ, the Son of God, in his, in his incarnational glorification. Aristarchus is joined to this same narrative. He joined to it because of Paul's proclamation, but he, he enters into that narrative as one who is together with the Apostle, crucified with Christ, born again by the transformation from death to life, raised up by the resurrection of Christ together with the Lord Jesus, and justified and glorified together with him. These are not then incidental names. These are names which have the richness of what it means to be united to Christ and joined to him in all of his redemptive work and the uh, uh, standing of him in terms of his eternal and heavenly life and grace. Any questions about Aristarchus? Now the next name On the list is Barnabas, and this is a more lengthy biography from the language of the New Testament, from the cases of the New Testament where Barnabas appears. So we begin by turning once again back to the book of Acts and to the fourth chapter of that book. Acts chapter four, verse thirty six. Barnabas is a Levite with a name Joseph, which indicates that he is of what ethnic background? He's Jewish, yes. And that's confirmed again with Colossians 4, 11, of the circumcision. Barnabas would be folded into that, Uh, even though Barnabas may not have been with Paul there at that point when he was writing the Colossian letter. Nonetheless, we learn from Acts 4 that he's a Levite, of Cyprian birth. What's that mean, Cyprian birth? He's from Cyprus. Cyprus. And where is Cyprus? It's an island island in the Mediterranean. It's actually off the coast of Turkey. It's closer to Turkey than it is to Italy. Okay. Now, he was called by the apostles Barnabas. So the apostles gave him a name which had something to do with his character. Uh, Bar, meaning son, nabas, which here is translated encouragement, or son of consolation or son of comfort. That's a characterization of Barnabas. It tells us a little bit about his personality and about his Christian personality. But in this case, we're introduced to him. Verse 37 of Acts 4 indicates that he owned a tract of land sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet in Jerusalem. All this is taking place in Jerusalem. So, uh, he's come to Jerusalem. Perhaps he's come to Jerusalem as part of the uh, pilgrimage feasts, and uh, he has heard the gospel. He's heard the gospel in such a powerful way that he's willing to sell property and contributed it to the needs of the saints. And his introduction here forms a a radical contrast to the next introduction, which is Ananias and Sapphira, who also sell a piece of property and hold back a portion of what they had sold, laying the rest at the apostles' feet. And you know the outcome of that deceit and misrepresentation. It's not that uh, Barnabas is a foil here. It's Luke indicating the the way of righteousness with respect to Barnabas and the way of unrighteousness with respect to Ananias and Sapphira, whose unrighteousness (coughs) caused them to receive the eschatological penalty instantaneously. All right, now, the second appearance of Barnabas is in Acts chapter 9. So if you'll turn forward with me to the ninth chapter. We'll find verse twenty seven, which as you know, the ninth chapter is the Damascus Road conversion of Saul of Tarsus, become the Apostle Paul. where Barnabas takes hold of him, that is, of Paul, and brings him to the apostles. Now, the setting here is in Jerusalem. Barnabas seems to have remained in Jerusalem. But he knows uh, about Paul, and Paul is being treated suspiciously by the Christians in Jerusalem. So Barnabas takes him and uh, introduces him to the apostles by, notice how he summarizes, Paul's uh, experience. He had seen the Lord and he had seen the risen Christ on the road. He had talked to him and he, he exchanged conversation with him and how at Damascus he spoke boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was then moving freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So Barnabas here is a son of encouragement or comfort to the Apostle Paul by bringing him into the inner circle of of that Jerusalem Christian community who was suspicious of him and logically so remembering that when he had left Jerusalem to go to Damascus he had documents that would have arrested Christians and perhaps got them to bring them back to Jerusalem even for the purpose of executing them. So here is Barnabas coming to Paul's defense and in fact um, he is called in Acts 14, 14, uh, you can t- turn quickly to that uh, interesting term that is used there in Acts 14:14. 14, 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard. So Barnabas is labeled an apostle in the book of Acts. And what was the qualification of an apostle? Marge? Yes, that that the risen Christ had appeared to him either Barnabas had seen uh, the risen Christ while he was in Jerusalem before the ascension or Christ had appeared to him in some way that we're not informed of it's an interesting suggestion that uh, Barnabas if he's labeled an apostle would have to have had the experience of an apostle that's true of the apostle Paul he has the experience of being a witness or seeing the risen Christ in his glorified flesh. Well, uh, Barnabas uh, brings Paul into the Jerusalem circle, as I said. And then in Acts eleven twenty two, the next appearance of Barnabas, In the New Testament record, Barnabas is sent off to Antioch. He's sent by the Jerusalem church to encourage the church in Antioch, undoubtedly because there were Cypriot Individuals there, if you look back to verse 20, there were some of Cyprus and Cyrene who had come to Antioch and they were preaching. So because Barnabas was a native Cypriot and these other Cypriots were there preaching the gospel, they sent Barnabas to Antioch to uh, encourage the church and to also encourage those who were preaching there. Now, in this uh, uh, 11th chapter, you'll notice that after verse 22, it goes on to describe him. He says in verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. But something happens in that encounter of Barnabas going to Antioch. Something stirs his heart. So that in verse 25 there of Acts 11, he leaves for Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul had been sent by the Jerusalem church to Tarsus back to his hometown in Cilicia. And Barnabas, knowing where he was, leaves from Antioch and goes to Tarsus to find find Paul. And when he found him, he brought him back to, to Antioch. Now they stay there for a year. supporting the church there, and as we look at Acts 13, we have the next appearance of Barnabas from Antioch, in which the church there sends Barnabas and Simeon and others and Saul uh, on the first missionary journey. Now, these delays in between are delays in which the church is progressing and maturing and also solidifying and realizing what its vision and mission is, part of which is to reach out to those who are unsaved and need to hear proclamation of the gospel of the risen Christ. So in this uh, uh, first verse of chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are embarking on the first missionary journey, which will take them to Cyprus, which was of course Barnabas's native country, and to Pamphylia, which is the province of Asia Minor, just across the Mediterranean from uh from Cyprus, it would have been the closest beachhead, so to speak, of uh, moving, sailing from Cyprus north to Asia Minor. Pamphylia. Now that's not the only ones who go. If you turn to verse 13 of this 13th chapter of Acts someone else is with them. In fact this verse talks about going from Cyprus, Paphos and landing in Perga in Pamphylia. They had someone else with them who had not been mentioned before And his name is John. At least he'd not been mentioned before in uh, (coughs) this missionary journey, but he was obviously with them because he returns to Jerusalem and leaves them when they arrive in Asia Minor. Who is this John? This is John Mark, yes. Well, We'll look at him later on because he's on the list in Colossians 4, but right now we note that in the midst of the first missionary journey, John Mark goes home, goes back to Jerusalem. Well, in this chapter, chapter 13, Barnabas in verse 46 and 47 joins with the apostle Paul To proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Particularly in instances where the Jews resist that gospel, resist that proclamation. And the next movement of the narrative of Christ is going to reach out as a result of this experience on the first missionary journey to fold in Gentile believers. In other words, the biographical narrative of Christ is for the ends of the earth, Jew and Gentile alike. And so that narrative begins to be accomplished here at the end of chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas declare that it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, meaning the Jews, but you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And then he quotes Isaiah, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And verse 48, when the Gentiles heard us, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. The church from here on will not be, shall we say, restricted to one ethnic group. It will not be restricted to... The synagogue communities, which some of whom break away from the synagogue traditions and come to Christ. From this point on, gospel will include Jew and Gentile alike in the richness of that harvest which includes the nations. Right now, Barnabas is part of this incremental advance of the message of the gospel beyond the limits of Judaism. Paul has probably been uh, alerted to this in his own isolation and uh, teaching by the Holy Spirit and by the risen Christ, both in the Arabian desert and in Tarsus when he went for a year uh, uh, after he left Jerusalem and Barnabas went up and got him. So... uh, this this uh, rejection by the jews triggers all this thinking about the prophecies of the book of isaiah and the gentile inclusion and jesus's own discussion or comment to his disciples in the great commission all right now at the end of uh, of uh, chapter 14 uh, we are prepared for a return to Antioch in verse twenty six. So they left Pamphylia after the first missionary journey, and they go back to Antioch from which they had embarked uh, some time before. And then in chapter fifteen, verse one, they go up to Jerusalem to the famous Council of Jerusalem where they argue before the council that one may be saved without circumcision because there are those in Jerusalem from the Jewish uh, Christian element that are arguing that one cannot be saved unless they're circumcised according to the law of Moses. And so Barnabas and Paul testify at that very famous Council of Jerusalem that there is no restrictions upon God's work and once again they quote the old testament in the midst of that uh of that uh, proclamation uh, book of amos and also uh, those passages from the prophets which talk about the gentiles being called by the lord's name they then are commissioned as a result of the conclusions of the Council of Jerusalem to carry this message to the church in Antioch, which was their home base. And what message were they to carry? Well, it's the conclusion or the decrees of the Council of Jerusalem that no burden be laid upon the other, upon Christian believers. And the point here is saying no burden, namely no ritualistic burden, no requirement to be circumcised, which was the issue here. In the Jerusalem Council, no barrier to to membership on the part of the Gentiles, which was also an issue in this in the Council of Jerusalem. The church is is not quite clear on this until it's becoming clearer that when the Jews reject and the Gentiles accept, then the Gentiles are being grafted into the vine of Israel and becoming part of the richness of that expanding harvest which Jesus himself talks about in John chapter 4, for instance. Now, what were those decrees? Well, in verse 28 and 29 of Acts 15, there are no other essentials than you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. Keep yourselves free from such things and you will do well. But you don't need circumcision. You don't need the rituals of, of Old Testament Judaism. Those things are not required for membership in the kingdom of heaven. Well, in verse 35 of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas in Antioch preach and teach the word of the Lord, including these decrees which they had been asked to share. And you'll notice that they are also We'll share those with other churches in chapter 16. But at the end of chapter 15 comes a sad event in the apostolic record. Paul and Barnabas, in verse 37, decide that they're going to go back to revisit the churches of the first missionary journey, which would mean they're going to go back. Through Cyprus, and then across to Asia Minor, and uh, and and tour those congregations and see how they're doing, how they've been doing since that first visitation. Verse thirty-seven of Acts fifteen, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them. So this is how we know John, who's named earlier, is actually John Mark. And Paul refuses, verse 38, Paul insisted that they should not take him along because he had deserted them in Pamphylia, which is that province of Asia Minor across the Mediterranean water from Cyprus, and had not gone with them to the work. He had not fulfilled the work or accompanied them in the work that needed to be done. And here's the sad incident. There occurred a sharp disagreement between Barnabas and Paul, and they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Obviously, Barnabas going back to his native country to uh, see how things have been going since the first visit. Paul chose Silas and left and traveled to Syria, verse 41, traveled through Syria and Cilicia. So he goes overland to the churches of that first missionary journey. Barnabas goes by sea, and Paul goes by land. Barnabas takes Mark, and Paul takes Silas. This is how Silas becomes part of the Apostolic mission. All right, so in these verses at the end of chapter 15, we are at the uh, out. we're in the onset of the second missionary journey. Second journey to Asia Minor. The journey in which Paul receives the Macedonian call and he goes to Europe for the first time. We've already noted that when we mentioned Aristarchus being a Thessalonican. He goes to Greece where he delivers in chapter 17 of Acts the famous Mars Hill address. He stops briefly in Ephesus at the end of this second missionary journey, chapter 18 verses 19-21. And then at the end of the second missionary journey, chapter 18, verse 22, where do we find the apostle? He is in Caesarea and goes up to Antioch. He returns to Antioch, which was the home base for the first missionary journey. All right, so Barnabas is not with him. the Apostle embarks on his third missionary journey in Acts 18.29. So in 22 of 18, he goes to Antioch. Verse 23, he spends some time there, but then he leaves and goes through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now this is the beginning of the third missionary journey. And you'll notice he's retracing his steps here retracing the steps of the second missionary journey and perhaps adding Galatia and Phrygia to that because they're more centrally and northern regions or provinces of Asia Minor. And as we've already pointed out in our discussion of Colossians, he did not go to Colossae on this trip. He never saw the Colossian Christians by faith, so he's gone north uh, uh, north and west uh, towards Macedonia And lands at the end of that trip in Ephesus. Chapter 19, verse 1. And he remains there, according to verse 10 of Acts 19, for two years. All right, now, Barnabas is mentioned in the book of Galatians. So we need to look at that passage because this is the next occurrence of his name. Galatians 2, verse 13, which is Paul's description of the uh, challenge of Cephas or Peter with respect to the gospel in Galatia a confrontation which occurred in Antioch, as Paul indicates in verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So Barnabas here in Galatians 2.13 is joining Peter, Galatians 2.11, in ceasing to eat with uncircumcised Gentile Christians because of Jewish pressure to carry over the ceremonial restrictions of the Mosaic law into the gospel age, putting up barriers based upon Jewish ritual practices. Paul rebukes this hypocrisy with his famous declaration in verse 16 of Galatians 2, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now that clash that occurred in Galatia, or occurred as a result of uh, the Galatian, that is recorded in the Galatian epistle, that clash puts its finger once again on this issue of the Judaizing element in early Christianity and how the early Christians who were converted from Judaism had to grow in their understanding of where the limits of inclusion were. There are no limits of inclusion in terms of ritual, uh, ceremonial, religious rites and practices, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, whether male or female. There's no There are no limitations and no barriers to their admission because justification by faith is for who, whoever will receive it, whoever it is, is determined to be poured out upon, and God is pouring out that justification upon the Gentile world through these apostolic missionary journeys and preaching preachings and epistles. So, uh, this last mention of Barnabas, it's, oh, it's actually not the last mention, I take that back. This mention of Barnabas here in Galatians indicates that he himself had been carried away in the hypocrisy of Peter. Was this... Clash was this uh, <clears throat> confrontation? Was it settled? Was it reconciled? Well, I think the letter to the Galatians is testimony to its reconciliation, but also the mention of Barnabas in Colossians four ten, which we're dealing with uh, today, is mentioned. There is a positive mention. It's not a negative uh, slur or uh, if Paul's not afraid. To put his name into his epistle, it suggests that Paul esteems Barnabas, has confidence in him. Suggests that Barnabas, as Peter, reconsidered uh, this issue over which they clashed, it was a result of the Galatian Judaizing problem, and we may also point out that in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, verse six, there's another comment about Barnabas which is very positive. 1 Corinthians 9, 6, Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Here in the context of his Corinthian ministry, Paul is commending Barnabas. There's one other interesting passage in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 16. Paul mentions Titus, who is earnest on behalf of the Corinthians. And Paul says, we have sent, verse 18, we have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our readiness Taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. Who is this unnamed individual brother whose fame is spread through all the churches with, by the gospel through all the churches? Well, John Calvin thought that this unnamed individual was Barnabas. And as we've indicated in these little biograph- this little biographical sketch to this point, Barnabas did travel widely with the Apostle, even though he did not travel in that second missionary journey. He was aware of Paul as a result of the Corinthian ministry, and, and here uh, he reappears, perhaps unnamed, because his reputation is sufficient for the Corinthians to know whom the Apostle is describing here. So I think that we may uh, safely conclude that uh, Barnabas was properly reconciled uh, to the apostle and, uh, and and received the apostle's rebuke with uh, with humility and acceptance and also confessing his own error in attempting to establish barriers which God himself had not established Yes, go ahead. Well. This
1: might be a little bit off the main subject, but uh, where it says
0: where are you reading?
1: Well I'm I'm trying to find my place here. Galatians. I Galatians. Yes. Uh I lost and I'll find it and get back to it. I'll
0: give you a minute.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, well, anyway, what I was looking at Uh, I'll have to get back to you. I can't find it right now. All
0: right. Uh, now we come to. Oh, I found it. Okay.
1: <laughs> uh, Galatians two, verse twelve. It says, "For when a certain men came from James, who was eating, He was eating with the Gentiles. Does that imply that James?" was also of the circumcision party? It, it, it suggests that he, he was
0: favoring that, that approach, yes.
1: And that would be the James that's the,
0: the brother of Jesus? It could be the brother of Jesus, or it could be the bishop of Jerusalem, as he sometimes called the one who was in charge of that council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, who was subsequently executed. Which, which, which one I'm not prepared to to say. Right here, or it could be even another James, uh, because there are a number of Jameses in the New Testament. But this this issue would it, it would would likely come up as a result of Jerusalem Jewish Christianity, and you know what's the relationship of a converted Jew to the Old Testament ritual and ceremonial law? <clears throat> Were we going to break this off right away? Are going to peter out over a period of time or are we going to require it as a badge of admission and so <clears throat> this point for for Paul is a very large point of exposing the necessity to leave Judaism behind and come fully into the liberty and grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ
1: yeah. well it just seemed to me that somebody who is very important is. Promoting this uh, circumcision. Yes, as as it seems
0: as, as Peter himself is, and, and at least by not eating with the Gentiles as he used to do, and <clears throat> Paul is is outraged at this because, of course, this is this is making distinctions that the gospel of Christ does not make. Yes, Marge, or Ben, did you, did you, no, okay, Marge? It seems to me that
1: what um, Paul is saying against Peter is that he was hypocritical, that he was acting one way when he wanted to please the Jews, and another way when he believed that it was okay to eat with the Gentiles.
0: Yes, that there's hypocrisy in both cases with Barnabas and Peter, yes, so it, it, it's not that they were separating themselves out they were they were playing both ends of the of the uh, of the of the bar of the bargain or both ends of the, of the discussion and again that's offensive to paul because the the barriers are down and we're not we're not setting up any man-made requirements or old testament requirements for inclusion in the new testament covenant community but it it, it takes a while for this to make its it makes its imprint, its impression upon particularly the Jerusalem church, <clears throat> even to call a council to discuss these matters of what should we do with respect to sacrifice. You, you would think that that would disappear when the sacrifice of Christ is complete. But no, they, they struggle with it. And we can be sympathetic with that. But at the same time, <clears throat> as they work through it, they work through it properly. They call the council to determine it accurately. And so now, now if we've said this in Acts fifteen, then why in Galatians two are we going back on what we said? So that raises another interesting question about the chronology of Acts fifteen with Galatians two. Uh, but <clears throat> that that's a little complex issue. I'd refer you to Professor Sanborn's lectures on Galatians that are on tape uh, that were done here years ago. All right. Now Mark is next, but I think we'll take our break at this point, and uh, <clears throat> and we'll come back to Mark. Now we want to uh, look at Mark as we begin this session. And once again, examine the name and the occurrence of the name as it provides particularly biographical information in the New Testament. <clears throat> We really don't know anything accurately outside of the New Testament record for these folks, except what is present in tradition, which is not as reliable as the inspired word of God, of course. So let's begin to make our way through the appearances of Mark in the New Testament. Keep in mind that all of these names are individual Christians. Individual Christians whose life has come to interface with the life of the Apostle Paul. There's been a relational interaction between each of them and the Apostle. And that means that they've also been in a relationship between the Apostle's narrative. For they know his narrative biography and that draws them into the most wonderful narrative narrative namely the narrative that is Paul's narrative, the in Christ narrative, and the narrative that now belongs to these names, namely the in Christ narrative as well. So this is the bond of fellowship, the bond of relationship, the bond of interface that te- <clears throat> that intersects in the same narrative paradigm, namely Christ's narrative to apostles' narrative to these individual names' narratives important to keep that in mind, to put some flesh on the bones of the individuals and not just these bare incidental facts, which we're going to recount now as we look at the beginning with Mark, Acts chapter 12. Now, your outline has a question mark after uh, the name Mark. And if we begin with Acts chapter 12, verse 12, you'll understand why the question mark is there. So if you turn back to uh, the 12th chapter of Acts and look at the 12th verse, the context is Peter, as you'll notice from verse 11. Peter, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. So John Mark is the full name of this uh, individual whom Paul commends here in the end of Colossians 4. Now you'll notice at the end of this 12th chapter of Acts, <laughs> verse 25, that phrase, John, who was also called Mark, is repeated this time in the context of Barnabas and Saul. And there's one more note of this same phrase. It's Luke's way of referring to John Mark. If you turn to chapter 15, verse 37, this is after the great council in Jerusalem where James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, officiated You'll notice verse 37 of Acts 15, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. So there are at least three places in the book of Acts where Luke gives the full name of Mark, namely John Mark. Now turning back to chapter 12, a comment about the larger context. I didn't say anything about Peter's situation when I mentioned that he's in this chapter, in verse 11, he's actually in the chapter before, he's been released from prison. Herod imprisoned him after he had executed James, the brother of John, uh, John the Apostle, that's in verse 2 of chapter 12. And you remember the story that Peter had been freed from that prison, prison house, by a miraculous angelic intervention. And so having been released, he comes uh, to this house, knocks on the gate, and uh, asks to be uh, let in. And the little servant girl, Rhoda, in verse 13, is so surprised uh, she runs to tell everybody that Peter's there. Well, what is interesting about this is that here we have John Mark, or Mark, identified with his first contact with the Apostle Peter. Now, this is important as we go forward. Mark's first contact or interaction with the Apostle Peter after Peter is miraculously released from prison and restored to the worshiping community or the church <laughs> which is in Jerusalem. Now, this is the location of this incident. <clears throat> How do we know that this is the location of the incident? If you go back to chapter 11, verse 22, <clears throat> the church at Jerusalem is being described. And here in chapter 12, if you notice verse 3 and verse 4, what's going on in the background are the days of unleavened bread and the feast of the Passover. Passover. Now, that would be mentioned because of its central uh, uh, ceremonial observance, namely in Jerusalem around the temple, <coughs> the second temple uh, of the Jews built by Herod the Great, <coughs> so that we know the location of this incident, that when Peter comes to this house, he's coming to a house in Jerusalem, <coughs> So we also know the ethnic background of John Mark. We know his mother's name as well. His mother's name is Mary, as you see in verse 12 there of Acts 12. We know his ethnic background. If not from this incident, remembering Colossians 4.11, they of the circumcision. Mark's name is in that list of those that were Circumcised, which, of course, includes Aristarchus and uh, Jesus, known as Justice. Those three are Jewish in, in ethnic background. Well, if that's Mark's ethnic background, what's he doing in this house? Praying. Obviously, he's been converted. These are praying. These people had meant to pray for Peter's safety, and perhaps even for his deliverance, but uh, this is a Christian gathering of a part of the church in Jerusalem, going back to chapter 11, verse 22, and so we understand a little more about Mark's background. He was raised a Jew. He was circumcised. He, in some way, heard the gospel of Christ. We don't know exactly how. It's not described But he was converted, and he's in a prayer meeting in his mother's house where a a group of Christians gathers out of the Church of Jerusalem. I don't know that it would be the sole headquarters or the sole meeting place of the Church of Jerusalem. I think the Church of Jerusalem is probably spread out through the city in perhaps a number of places. But nonetheless, Mark is part of that praying group and therefore presumably A Christian in his own convictions. All right, so Mark, who has become a Christian out of his Jewish background, Mark is is first meeting the Apostle Peter in this incident in Acts chapter 12. Now, not only is he encountering or interacting with the Apostle Peter, he's also, as Colossians 4 indicates, Colossians 4, 11 indicates, a relative of Barnabas. <clears throat> now, as you go back to Colossians 4, keep your finger in Acts because we're going to come back there. As you go back to Colossians 4 and read from your Bible, <clears throat> the 10th verse reads Barnabas' cousin, Mark. Do any of you have a Bible or you're carrying a Bible where there's a different word there than cousin? Or do all your versions read cousin? Anybody's any different? Good. All right. That's the proper translation of the Greek word there. There are some versions that translate it as nephew, which suggests that there was an uncle uh, uh uncle relationship Uncle-Nephew relationship between the two. That's, that's not an accurate rendering of the Greek text. <clears throat> Just a word in passing about that since it sometimes appears in discussions of Mark's background. Alright, now, back to chapter 12 of Acts, and actually moving on to chapter 13. <clears throat> you notice that the end of the 12th chapter, Barnabas and Saul return to Jerusalem and they take And they prepare for a mission and they take John, called Mark, along with them. So Mark is going to travel with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey of the Apostolic group. They go to Antioch, chapter 13, verse 1, and they're heading where? Notice verse four Cyprus? to Cyprus, and where did, what is Cyprus, and where is Cyprus? Island. It's an island where? The in the Mediterranean Sea, and why are they going to Cyprus? Why would they pick Cyprus? The Holy Spirit sent them, the Spirit sent them but why would He send them to Cyprus? Is there, is there any reason, go ahead? Okay. I think Barnabas was from Yes, Barnabas is a native of Cyprus. And so he's very eager to take the gospel back to his native land. It is conceivable that he had already been there, although he appears in the book of Acts, as we pointed out last time, in, in terms of his uh, getting together with Paul and, in fact, vetting Paul before the church at Jerusalem so that the church of Jerusalem not suspicious of this man who had, first, who had once upon a time tried to kill Christians and even consented to their execution, particularly in the case of Stephen. All right, so <clears throat> Cyprus, because it's Barnabas's home territory, and Acts 13 describes how they crossed the island proclaiming the word of God in the synagogues along the way. Jewish synagogues on the island of Cyprus in the first century A.D. How did Jews get to the island of Cyprus in the first century A.D.? Well, once again, it's this Jewish diaspora, it's the Jewish spreading across the world after the Babylonian exile and ending up in various places in Europe and Asia Minor, et cetera. So that's the reason there's Jewish community there. And in fact, there are... Jews from Cyprus that are at Pentecost in Acts 2 because, of course, they would make the pilgrimage to the, uh, to, uh, the, to the city of Jerusalem and to the temple there because of their attachment to the festival calendar of the Old Testament. All right, now in verse 5 of chapter 13, after they made their way across the island, they reached Salamis, which is at the west end of Cyprus, And they go on, I'm sorry, they start at Salamis, go to Paphos, which is at the west end, I apologize. And they end up at the other end uh, of the island in verse 13. And go to Pamphylia. Perga in Pamphylia. Perga is the city, In Pamphylia is a region. Region of where? What? Well, they've gone across the island of Cyprus. They've actually gone from east to west. At the west end of uh, uh, Cyprus, at Paphos, they've gone somewhere else. They've gone to Pamphylia. And where's Pamphylia? Macedonia or Greece? No. What is north of Cyprus today? Greece? No. Crete is west. What is north of Cyprus? What country would you get to if you sailed from Cyprus directly north? Turkey, Turkey yes. And, and that's what country in the ancient world? Which is part of what? Asia Minor. Okay, so they're going to Asia Minor, but in particular, a province of Asia Minor which is on the south coast in other words directly opposite Cyprus pamphylia is the name of that uh, uh region and there's a city there where they they uh, <clears throat> reach harbor called perga all right now <clears throat> John agrees to go from Jerusalem to Antioch John agrees John Mark agrees to go from Antioch to Salamis eastern Cyprus, John Mark goes with them all the way across the island. Eupaphos agrees to go with them towards Pamphylia. And when they get to Pamphylia, verse 13, he leaves them and returns to Jerusalem. And there's another clue that we know that he was from Jerusalem. He went back to his native city when he left Paul and Barnabas in Pamphylia in Asia Minor. Was he kind of a mama's boy? Is that the reason he went back home? Mm, Hard to tell, because we really don't know what his reasons were, but he returned and left the mission group. All right. From Pamphylia, Paul and Barnabas go on through the regions of Pisidia and then back to Antioch, chapter 14, verse 26, One which they had departed on that first missionary journey. So, the first missionary journey includes Antioch to Cyprus, Cyprus to southern Asia Minor, Pamphylia, and uh, Pisidia, and then back, but not back to Cyprus, back to the ships in Pamphylia, to a ship in Pamphylia, and then sailing east to Antioch once again. Leave Antioch, first missionary journey, come back to Antioch. Interesting, isn't it, that Antioch is the hub of the missionary work of the early church. In fact, they will depart from Antioch from virtually all of their missionary journeys. All right, now that brings us to chapter 15, which is the next mention of John Mark. We've already cited this in part, but we'll begin with chapter 15, verse thirty. Note once again that this is after the Great Council of Jerusalem, and Paul and Barnabas are sent away down to Antioch. They also have with them Judas and Silas. All right. Now, in verse uh, in verse thirty, returning to uh, Antioch. They determined to go back to Cyprus. Verse 37. Actually, verse 36. Paul says to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark with them, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who deserted them in Pamphylia. There's that incident in the southern Asia Minor and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord and he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. <clears throat> All right, so... This disagreement and rupture between Barnabas and Paul is due to John Mark or Mark's behavior on that first journey, having uh, deserted them and turned back. He deserted the work and gone back to Jerusalem. Paul says he's not fit to continue on a uh, <clears throat> on a retry or a retake of the same that same fishing missionary journey. Now you can see the hand of providence here indirectly, namely that because Paul won't take Mark, he goes a different direction. He goes overland through Syria and Cilicia. Why Cilicia? Cyprus, we know why Cyprus because of Barnabas. Why Cilicia for Paul when he separates from Barnabas? Where's Cilicia? That's also in Asia Minor. That's where what? No, Colossae is further to the west. Cilicia is right there at the angle where Syria and Turkey or Asia Minor meet. And Cilicia is the region where Tarsus Appears. So why go to Cilicia?
2: Where from. Yes,
0: Saul of Tarsus. Paul is from Tarsus and Cilicia. So notice, first missionary journey, they go to Cyprus because that's Barnabas's native land. Second missionary journey, because of the disagreement or the rupture between Paul and Barnabas, Paul goes to his own native land. Now, he's already been there, actually. He's been there before this time, but nonetheless, now... He's going there on a, on a specific, deliberate missionary journey, taking Silas along with him. And it says he strengthened the churches, so obviously there were some other churches there that we don't know anything about. We don't know their names because he's not, in Cilicia, he has not reached the center of Asia Minor yet, where the Galatian churches are, nor has he reached the Lycus Valley, where the Colossian churches, Colossian and Heropolis and Laodicea are, <clears throat> And he hasn't ever visited the west coast of Asia Minor yet where the seven churches of Asia Minor are located. So this is a very interesting uh, way in which God continues to promote the gospel, but by expanding the uh, focus of the mission. Yes, uh, Barnabas is going with Mark to Cyprus to reinforce that work, but Paul is now embarking on a brand new journey, the second missionary journey, Departs in Acts 15. Now Paul will go from Cilicia on the eastern end of the southeastern end of Turkey or Asia Minor. He'll go through the central portion of the country without touching on Colossae because he had never been there. Remember in verse 2 of chapter 2 he had never seen them face to face. He goes across the center and towards the north. And he ends up in Troas in chapter 16, verse 8, which is on the northwestern corner of Mysia and Bithynia. That's the, the, the provinces there. In verse 8 of chapter 16, he ends up in Troas where he receives the next Shall we sell jolt given to the apostolic mission? And that jolt is the famous Macedonian call. So Paul, having broken with Barnabas, goes through Asia Minor, touching territory that he's never been in before. And at Troas, on the northern, northwestern tip of Asia Minor, he is called over to Europe taking the focus off of Jerusalem, taping the focus off of Jerusalem or Palestine, Israel, and Syria, taking the focus off of Palestine, Israel, or Syria, and Cyprus, taking the focus off of even Asia Minor. Now, Paul, come over to Europe, come over to Macedonia. Macedonia is in Europe. And, of course, from that Macedonian call, he makes his way down to Corinth on the second missionary journey. All right. Now, Paul's second journey is completed by a brief stop in chapter 18 in Ephesus as he's sailing back towards towards, uh, Caesarea, or towards, uh, Palestine. And you notice in verse 19 of Acts 18, he comes to Ephesus and spends a little bit of time reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, but they wouldn't, but, but he didn't consent to stay any longer because he wanted to get back to Jerusalem. <clears throat> so that's his first contact with Ephesus at the end of the second missionary journey after he's made his initial Contact with Europe with a tour of Greece and Macedonia. So he lands in Caesarea in chapter 18, verse 22, and goes up to Antioch, back to the place from which he launched the second missionary journey. First missionary journey begins in Antioch, ends in Antioch for Paul. For a second missionary journey begins in Antioch, ends in Antioch for Paul. All right, so... <clears throat> What's this have to do with uh, John Mark? Well, it raises the question as to whether the rift between Paul and Mark was ever reconciled. Was this rift between the two ever healed? Mark or Paul was insistent that Mark not go with them, virtually accusing him of being a traitor to the cause. Refusing to do the work which was appoint, appointed or before them. Those are pretty harsh terms. <clears throat> was that uh, disagreement, and it of course led to the separation of Paul and Barnabas, that agreement, was that disruption ever reconciled? Well, I think the testimony to that is in this language of Colossians 4 that we have in front of us in verse 11. or actually verse 10. Notice what Paul says about Mark there. You have received instructions about him. Now, instructions here would be information. If he comes to you, welcome him. That raises the question of where Mark is. When Paul is writing those words in Colossians 4.10, where is Mark located? Mark, you're nodding your head. Well,
2: uh, with Paul. Yes,
0: he is with Paul. <clears throat> Remember, we distinguished Tychicus and Onesimus of those who are sent away from Paul in this in this context, from those in verses 10 and following who still remain behind with Paul. So Mark is with Paul as he writes these words, and he says to the Colossians, now, you know about him because you received instructions. Well, what instructions have they received? Well, some kind of information had been passed on to the Colossians about Mark's relationship to Paul and the fact that having sent him away at the beginning of the second missionary journey, Paul has him embraced or with him in prison or being able to visit him in that house arrest imprisonment, which is described at the end of Acts 28. And on top of that, if he comes to you, welcome him. If he hasn't come to them yet, he's still with Paul in Rome. If he comes to you, welcome him. Don't Treat him as a traitor. Don't treat him as someone who's not welcome. Greet him. Grant him the favor of your fellowship, even as I have granted him the favor of my fellowship. I think that this passage indicates that Paul and Mark have been wonderfully and uh, 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 lovingly uh, uh, reconciled and reunited. Now, the next time Mark's name is mentioned is in the epistle that goes along with Colossians. What epistle goes along with Colossians? Philemon. Very good. So if you turn to Philemon a minute, keep your finger in Colossians 4 there. Turn ahead to Philemon and you'll notice verse 24. Paul is writing both Letters at approximately the same time. It's true there could be days difference <clears throat> between them, but nonetheless it's in the, in the same setting and the same time of the apostle's career that he writes Colossians and Philemon. And notice verse 24. Here are the greetings coming from those that are with him. Epiphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, My fellow workers, all of whom are listed in Colossians 4 as well. With one interesting difference. Margie? Demas? Well, we're looking at Mark. Oh. Well, there's one name there that's different.
2: Doesn't say
0: John Mark. Doesn't say John Mark, true. Just says Mark. But notice the order. Who's first in cautions? Aristarchus. In verse 24, who's first? Mark. Aristarchus is second. Who's second in Colossians? Mark is second. Who's first in Philemon? Mark. Now why would Paul do that? Why would he reverse the order? It's true in the Greek. Why would he reverse the order? Well, it's a possible chiastic device to show the, shall we say, reflective or mirror relationship of the two. They are his co-workers, fellow workers. Even as that term occurs in verse 11, but not with respect to, well, with respect to to all three of them, Jesus' justice as well. It's, It's possible that that reversal is an attempt to, Draw them even tightly to get more tightly together to those that read the epistle. For those of you that are trained in chiasms, this may be a chiastic device. Maybe. And the chiastic device is intended to mirror the relationship. Alright, now there's one more place to examine for Mark. Well, there's actually two more places. But the next one in Paul's corpus is in 2 Timothy Chapter four, verse 11. Now in the background is this question about whether there was a reconciliation between Paul and Mark. And this uh, verse <clears throat> also helps us understand the resolution. First Timothy four, second Timothy four, I'm sorry, verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Timothy is to pick up Mark and bring him to Paul. Where is Paul when he's writing this letter? Well, keep your finger there in 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy 4 and turn back to chapter 1. Verse 17. Context, verse 16. But when he, on a sephorus, verse 16, was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. He found him where? Found Paul where? In Rome. So Paul is back in Rome. And Timothy... Is, uh, is told that that's where he'll find him as well when he brings Mark along with him because notice the language of chapter four, verse 11, Mark is useful in serving the apostle. Now Paul is in prison here in Rome in second Timothy. That's clear from verse eight of chapter one, he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. In verse 16 of chapter 1 of Second Timothy, he refers to his chains. And in verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, I am suffering a hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. So this is the second imprisonment of Paul in Rome. We'll make some comments later on in our next session about the details of how we know that that's the case, but we've already alluded to that before. You can't really make sense out of the relationship of the pastoral epistles to the Pauline corpus unless you have this second imprisonment. He was set free after the imprisonment of Acts 28, and here in Second Timothy, He is in prison once again. All right, the final mention of Mark is in 1 Peter chapter 5. The scriptures begin the account of Mark in the company of the apostle Peter and the scriptures end the account of Mark's life in the presence of the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5, chapter, verse 13. This is an important verse for a number of reasons. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Here's Peter using this language of paternal and filial relationship that Paul often uses, particularly with respect to Timothy, as Paul calls Timothy his son, his son in the faith. Peter describing Mark with the same term of affection and relation. What began in Jerusalem in the house of Mark's mother... That prayer meeting where Mark met Peter for the first time continues to the last mention of Mark in the New Testament, namely Peter's first epistle where he is denominated not just as a fellow believer, but as a son, a child of the apostle Peter, a child or son in the faith. This is a high Commendation is a tender commendation for Mark. Which means that the reconciliation between Paul and Mark is reflected in the sonship relationship between Peter and Mark. Namely, he's regarded as a Christian son, one who has been adopted to the children of God by the grace of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in this verse you'll notice that word Babylon. She who is in Babylon sends you greetings. What is Babylon? Is Peter talking or writing from Babylonia, the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire? Is that what Babylon means here? Probably not. Correct. This is a metaphor for... Gentiles? Gentiles? No. It's a city. Rome. Rome. Yes, it's a synonym. It's a metaphor for Rome. <clears throat> Peter himself being in Rome, writing this epistle, undoubtedly, from Rome, and commending Mark at the end of this epistle to his readers, Peter and Mark, Peter's epistle commending Mark as his son in the faith, and the Gospel Mark associated with Peter's eyewitness testimony to the life of Christ. Yes. What church? Christian church in Rome. Yes, the Christians in Rome. The feminine feminine pronoun would refer to the bride of Christ in that location. Okay. Associate then, when you're reading the Gospel of Mark, associate the Gospel of Mark with this commendation at the end of 1 Peter 5, Namely, that Mark and Peter interacted, discussed, commented, exchanged information. and That information about the ministry of Christ and Peter's experience of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is reflected in Mark's gospel. It is the shortest of all the four gospels because Mark is, shall we say, a rapid-fire writer a rapid-fire recorder, he is moving very quickly through the life of Jesus in terms of its tremendous impact, not only on the Jewish culture of Palestine when Jesus was alive, but beyond that, in his experience, the impact of that life, death, and resurrection upon the Gentile world into which he has moved with the Apostle Peter himself, as well as the Apostle Paul. All right, any questions? How many marks are there in the New uh, Testament? one,
2: two, three? I don't
0: I'm really yeah, you're, you're asking me a question I'm not prepared to answer. I'd have to go back and look at my dictionaries. I think there are other marks, but the most... This, this mark is, of course, the most noted.
2: Did Peter have a... a, a, a Son of Israel.
0: Of Lord, his flesh, of his body? <clears throat> named Mark. Uh, no, uh, not that we know of. He, he definitely was married because Jesus right. heals his mother-in-law, rather. So he was married.
2: So the people that say that Peter had a son mistake this for a literal son. Yes. Uh,
0: in, in a passage in which you got metaphor... Obviously, we have spiritual metaphor when you're talking about my son Mark. Okay. All right, that leaves us with. Go, go ahead, Randy.
2: Yeah, I've been confused by that a lot. I, a lot of people taught me that that uh, Peter's son named Mark wrote the Book of Mark, but it was his, you know, his uh, son of his loins, but. Now you have made sense of this. Now that, I'm this glad guy that, obviously is the one that wrote Mark, right? Yes, I'm glad I
0: delivered you from that fantasy, yes. Or I, I sealed the deal, so to speak. Am I
2: the only one that's been under this illusion? Nobody else ever heard that? Or they won't admit to it. They're Democrats, right?
0: <laughs> now, uh, moving on to the text of the Word of God... There's one more name here in Colossians 4, and that's in verse 11, <clears throat> Jesus, who is called Justice. This is the only mention of this person in the Bible. What do we know about him? Well, we know a number of things about him. First of all, what language is Jesus? Greek. Greek. Translated from what? The Hebrew. And what's the Hebrew?
2: Jesus. Um, uh, Great, that one escapes me.
0: <laughs> what's the Hebrew? Messiah? No, that's Christ. What would the what would the little boys and girls in Nazareth have called him? When I want him to kind of oh, Joshua. Yeah. called Joshua or Yeshua. Okay? So <clears throat> Joshua is the Hebrew name. Jesus is the English or the Greek translation of the Hebrew name. So that means we know he's what? Native. Jew. Ethnic. Yes. He's a native Jew. Okay. We also know that because of what the verse says. These members who are from the circumcision, namely Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, Justice. <clears throat> All right, so we know he's a Jewish background. He's of the circumcision. He was circumcised himself. He was a Hebrew, but he being been commended by Paul, which means what? he has been converted, just as Mark was a Jew by birth, been converted we don't know exactly how, but he's called Jesus justice. Now, what language is justice? You're nodding your head, are you? It's the Latin. Yes, it is Latin. Thank you. It is Latin. So, justus means what? What's it mean? Justice. Justus. What do you think it means? Just. Yes, just or righteous, that's what it means. Okay, so, justice, the righteous one. Jesus, justice. So why give a Hebrew name and a Latin name? Why designate him by these two names?
2: He must have some affiliation with Rome, I guess.
0: He had affiliation with... You're close. Yeah, you affiliation with what world? The Jesus name gives him affiliation with what world? The Jewish world. The justice gives him affiliation with what world? The Roman. Yeah, the Gentile world, Greco-Roman world. Not just, just not just Roman. Okay, the Gentile world. Okay, so this Latin word would have been known across the gentile uh, landscape in this time. So <clears throat> Paul is designating him as someone who moved in both arenas, moved in both worlds, Jew and gentile alike. Now, the, the other thing we know about him is he's part of the worker workers for the kingdom of God. That means as we've indicated that he was converted and became a member of the kingdom of God, which, according to verse 13 of chapter 1 of this epistle, means that he was delivered from the domain or kingdom of darkness and transferred by transformation in union with the death and resurrection of Christ to the kingdom of the beloved Son of God, the Father. This kingdom of God as we've said over and over again, is a semi-eschatological reality. It is a kingdom which is now and not yet. Jesus' justice is now a part of that kingdom, and he's destined to be not yet a part of it at his consummation and glorification. Now, at this point in Paul's career, he and Aristarchus and Mark are the only Jewish Christians Who remain with Paul for encouragement. Notice that phrase. They are the only fellow workers from the kingdom who are from the circumcision. Only means they're the only ones here with me. Three Jewish Christians who remain to encourage the Apostle Paul. Barnabas was a a pagan? No, Barnabas is also a Jewish convert, but he's not with him here. He's only mentioned in this list because he's a cousin of Mark. So I'm talking about those who are with Paul in this, in, in this imprisonment situation or able to be back and forth with Paul in this house arrest situation. He, he is from the circumcision, but I'm not referring to him as one being, one being present. Yeah. He was born a Jew in Cyprus. That's how he came that's how he came to Jerusalem in the first place. All right now uh, this word encouragement is an interesting one in the Greek. It's the Greek word paragoria, paragoria, Which means comfort or condolence. Does that ring a bell with any of you older folks?
2: In medicine. Aha! Uh-huh.
0: There's somebody that had it. What is it? It's, it's a
1: subtle
0: colic. colic. It's a... Used to colic. Used to settle colic. But what is it made from? It's actually a tincture of opium. It's powerful stuff. And has to be mixed with water. If you are, if you have it, although you're not supposed to have it anymore because the FDA banned it years ago, but I remember being given Paragoric <clears throat> as a child to settle intestinal flu, diarrhea, severe upset stomach. Just a little few drops were mixed in water, and uh, you sipped on it, and it, it did it really worked wonders. It uh, settled you down right away, Why but but the taste the taste of it was just hor- if you tasted it straight, it was just horrid. Even in water, it was terrible. But it would, it would encourage or comfort your, your, uh, your, your, your riled up gut, that's for sure. So it was kind of a wonder drug or wonder medicine in that way. But, but as I say, you can't get it. But here's, here's the word in the New Testament, <laughs> paragoria, from, from which we got paragoric as a medication no longer available. <clears throat> Alright, now. Last point here. Paul mentions this encouragement, as I've already said, from the three Jewish Christians who are still with him in Rome. He sent the others away. These three remain. Why state this to the Colossian church? Colossae is not far removed from Galatia, though they are separate, they're in separate regions of Asia Minor. These three Jewish Christians may be included here in order to remind the Colossians of the reconciliation of the Galatian controversy. Where who stood against Paul? At Galatians. Barnabas, Barnabas and. His mentor. Peter. Peter. Galatians, where Paul says, "I withstood. Barnabas, Barnabas and Peter. Barnabas being carried away with the hypocrisy is his language there in Galatians. So here, here at this point, this letter going to the Colossians, these names would resonate with those who had stayed with Paul, even one who had opposed him, and Jesus, Justice, Aristarchus, and Mark being part of a group which is the conciliate conciliated body of uh, of co-workers with the apostle, even those like Barnabas who's commended here, even even Barnabas's name is commended, <clears throat> so that that rift of the Galatian heresy has been conciliated, reconciled, and solved resolved. There's a little. A mirror reflection, conceivably, in these names to the Colossians, to remind them of a bitter dispute. In fact, a dispute which could have led to heresy if it hadn't been uh, if it hadn't been resolved. And the doctrine of justification by faith alone rescued from corruption and and degradation. I'm not I'm not dogmatic about that suggestion but I'm left wondering why does he commend these circumcised, formerly circumcised, now converted Christians to this group of Colossians, Christians in Colossae? Why? To remind them of the resolution of the tension between the Judaizing Christians in Galatia and how even Barnabas and Peter stood against the apostle in that incident. And that, that has been resolved. Here is one name which is on this list, Barnabas's name and these other names which would be associated with that reconciliation it would assure the cautions that those hatchets have been buried and those very dangerous heretical errors have been put to rest. Yes, Randy. So
2: the Galatian controversy, did that occur before the thing in Jerusalem where they argued about the same matter? No, I don't
0: think so. I think it's subsequent to it. I think it comes after the second missionary journey, I think. Thank you. Yes, yeah, Uh What I've written down from last week, from Acts 20, verse 4, Aristarchus was from uh, Thessalonica. Yes. Okay. so he was a he's Jew. Still a Jew, yes. He's, up, he's yeah. of the circumcision, even though he is from a, uh, a, a Gentile uh, city, yes. Once again, once again that Jewish diaspora cave, and they're spreading we mentioned it when we talked about Cyprus. It's the same thing across the whole ancient world. After the Babylonian captivity, they spread out over the civilized world. They place their synagogues in the in the cities where they have enough of a of a population. Does Herodotus
2: mention this at all? Uh the Jewish diaspora?
0: Yeah. Uh I don't think so, but I, I can't. Say for sure because I have I haven't read that much of a Herodotus. Yes, go ahead, Terry. the word diaspora. Diaspora, D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A, diaspora, just like it sounds, spreading out. Okay, they're spreading. Away. They're spreading out. They're spreading out from Jerusalem, obviously, by being carried to Babylon, but and then of course some of them come back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile is over when Cyrus the Great sets them free 539 B.C. But the point is, some of them don't come back, and they go elsewhere. They spread into other countries.
1: Is that a Hebrew word?
0: Diaspora is a Greek word. Yeah, it's a, it's a way of expressing the, the dispersion. And that's the reason, of course, that Paul has places to go. On. He goes to the synagogues first. It's only after he's rejected by the synagogue that he shakes the dust off his feet and he says, now I'm going to go to the Gentiles, which he says in his second missionary journey. Obviously, God had that little
2: business plan too, it figures now.
0: Yes, well, he's he's prepared the world in many ways. And one of the ways was even having most of the world speak and read Greek. So so when the New Testament gets written, it's spread all over the place. All right. Well, that's all we're going to do for today. So we'll close in prayer, and then you can uh, do whatever you, you can—fellowship uh, or uh, leave, as the case may be. We uh, let's give thanks for our time together. Yeah. Yes. You mentioned the Council of Jerusalem. What was that? Oh, that's Acts 15. It's kind of like the first general assembly. That Where? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that far back because they had a dispute. About what were the requirements of, uh, of continuing or being admitted to the church. And that dispute included whether they should be circumcised. So that was settled by the council of Jews. And no, they didn't require circumcision to be a, a member of the Christian church. <clears throat> and they should refrain from fornication and from meat sacrifice to idols. So those are the three things that, that, that came out of that council. So it's in Acts 15. <clears throat>
2: That little rift there. That's what I was referring to, you know. But James seems to resolve it there with what you said. Right?
0: Now you you're seeing a rift between Peter and Paul at the Council of Jerusalem? I thought
2: there was one there. Wasn't Peter still with the circumcision in some sense or something?
0: No, he's he's uh he's actually affirming that there's no distinction. Yeah, if you look at chapter 15 verses 7 and following, Peter says, you know that in the early days God made a choice that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And he goes on in that, in that spirit, which is the reason that since he seems to understand the Gentile inclusion in Acts 15, why is he why is he fellowshipping with these exclusionary people in in Galatia or in the Galatian situation? Yes, and
2: then why then later does Peter have a problem with the circumcision with Paul after that then. That doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a subsequent development, you know, playing to factions in the church.
2: With the problem in Galatia, Peter was on the opposite side. Right, so which, which
0: means he's, it's after the Council of Jerusalem, in my opinion.
2: But at the Council of Jerusalem, Peter and Paul were on the same...
0: Right. Now, keep in mind that Peter's personality is variable. Remember, even in the Gospels, he's back and forth; he's up and down.
2: He's an emotional dude. Yeah, he is. So
0: he's not always consistent.
2: Interesting. I'll digest that later if I can. Okay.
0: Well, let's close in prayer as I suggested. Father, we thank you for the blessing of this epistle and even the blessing of the lives of these individuals, most of whom were touched by that in-Christ union and their lives were hidden with Christ and God. We thank you for that precious gift and for him who is the center of it. We bless you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and thank you, Father, for sending him for our redemption and giving us the Holy Spirit to encourage us in our sanctification. Bless us in our life, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.